now as we continue our study in Romans chapter 9, now verses 19 through 24. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 24. You remember that Paul is answering a series of objections. He doesn't state it in the form of an objection in verse 6. But we could state it in the form of an objection. Has, God, has God's word failed? No. Verse 6. It's not as though uh, that the word of God has failed or taken no effect. Verse 14. The second objection. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And then coming to the third and the final objection. For now at least. Verse 19. Hear God's word. You will say to me then. Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And let us pray together. Holy Father, as we stand on the the holy ground to which you call us now, even as you called Moses from from the burning bush, we as it were, metaphorically, take the, sta- the sandals off our feet. We acknowledge the holiness of your word and of the high doctrines which we here consider, undoubtedly inadequately, though nonetheless we pray faithfully insofar as we are capable. God, would you give the preacher words to say? Would you give the people ears to hear? And would you give us hearts of praise as we consider this together this morning? Amen. Well, this would be... Now, the final sermon on this high and lofty doctrine of predestination or election. And here we consider in verse 19 what is the most common objection to the doctrine. Uh, You know, sometimes we think we're so clever with our our objections as though we were the first to ever think of it. But it's so interesting. It's so helpful to see the Bible was aware of these things. The Apostle Paul was dealing with them in his own day. And so, so often, the characteristic method of his teaching, we see this throughout Romans, is he sets forth the doctrine and then he, he deals with the objections. That's what he's doing here. Well, this is the objection that people always like to make against the notion, as he states in verse, uh, verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. The Apostle Paul, uh, quoting the Lord, in verses 15 and verse 17, just before, places the matter of salvation and of reprobation solely uh, in the hands of God. And knowing uh, how strongly uh, the, the, the heart of man protests against this, he asks the question, you will say to me then, he knows they're going to say it. And in a sense, I know you're going to say it. Why does he still find fault? Seeing that no one resists his will, even the reprobate reprobate whom he damns. Well, before we look at that objection, I want to begin by way of introduction. First, 
by amplifying a point which I made very briefly last time in, in the end of the sermon where I was applying the message. And I believe I even said that I was going to amplify this point. Let me do so here before we come to this final objection. I'm already seeking to clear away some of the difficulties and then we will face the greatest difficulty, which is that question. That is uh, that point which I uh, wish to amplify here is this. That is the question of whether what he says in verse 18 is somehow a verse 18 somehow at odds with uh, the gospel call. The invitation for guilty sinners to come unto Jesus and be saved. Are these things to be seen at odds? So often uh, that is the accusation. That if you state as strongly as I am stating that the sovereignty of God, you are emptying the gospel call of its uh, of its of its um, honesty, quite frankly. That's that's the accusation. And yet, do we not find, as I quoted last time, that Jesus Christ in inviting sinners to himself bases the call on this very thing? And we find him delighting in the father's will. He says, let me read it again. Uh, and, and, and I'll say again here uh, that this is the sweetest invitation one will find in all of the Bible. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's the message of Jesus to sinners to come and be saved and find rest for their souls. But even as he does so, just before he says these words, forgotten by many, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight and all things have been delivered to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. What is, I, I think I put it this way before, what is determinative, what is ultimate in the matter of salvation, even as the gospel goes forth and sinners are called unto Jesus, is not the will of man, it is the will of God. And it is the will of God, by the way, which makes salvation certain. The call is based upon, I, I mean, when I say it's certain, I mean that sinners will come. Because God has willed that they will. Likewise. Jesus says in John, John chapter 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Or in John 6, 44, where he says, no one comes to the father, but him whom draws uh, him whom he draws to himself. Speaking of the father again, do you see how the basis of the gospel call is found not in the will of man, but in the will of God? The basis of the gospel call is found in the choice of God in election. The purpose of God, chapter 9, verse 11 of Romans, is according to election. That is, his purpose for the elect is realized in calling them unto himself. Which is why the Apostle Paul ties election with the call when he says, not only do all things work for good together, uh, together for good to those who are called according to his purpose and those who love him. But he also adds for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. See how it all fits together. Who is Jesus calling to himself? He's calling the elect. My sheep know my voice. And they will surely come. Now that ought to inspire the church with confidence rather than the reverse. I could say much more about that, but I need to keep going. I want to make another point. And here I find I'm like Paul seeking to remove the difficulties and the objections. Since I know that uh, such a doctrine is objectionable to many and difficult to grasp. And that is, the next objection is, why not simply avoid the difficulty? And there are many preachers like this. Uh, preachers in this town who will admit, you know, secretly I'm a Calvinist. I just don't let my church know it. I've even heard of pastors saying, well, we got through Romans 8, but 9 is a little too difficult. Let's, let's skip that and go to 10. 10 is the really good stuff. And 10 is really good. But 9 is really good too. But you see, some, uh, there is a pastoral instinct here. He's, the pastor is saying to him, himself, in some sense, these things are too high and lofty even for me. And they must be as well for the church. So then, Pastor, why do you insist on uh, preaching this, seeing it is apt to upset the faith of many? And seeing that these things are unpopular, are they not apt as well to empty the church? I think that's the real driving motive in a lot of pastors' hearts. They're afraid of the consequences. My answer to this is to recount what happened in the first Great Awakening from uh, Joseph Tracy's book, The The, uh, The Great Awakening, uh, a record of the first Great Awakening. Uh, how that awakening began under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards in, uh, in Northampton in, in 1734. And it's interesting to notice that revival broke out when he preached. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a topical preacher. He, but it's interesting to notice this. He preached a series of sermons on justification by faith. And following that, what do you think he preached? He preached a series of sermons on election. Now, I, it didn't even occur to me until this, just this morning but that's the structure of Romans, by the way. Justification by faith, chapters 1 through 8, election, chapters 9 through 11. And the amazing thing is that under the preaching of both those series, but especially as he concluded, or in the midst of the second, having preached justification by faith, moving on to election, that revival broke out. And it spread through Northampton, spread through the country and the English-speaking world. So speaking of the first series, I want to read what Joseph Tracy says. And you'll see I'm still dealing with the first objection as well. These dis discourses, that is on justification, were followed by others in which he taught God's absolute sovereignty in regard to the salvation of sinners and his just liberty with regard to answering the prayers or succeeding the pains of mere natural men continuing such. That's a quote from Edwards. Th that idea of God's just liberty is an idea of tremendous power, Tracy says. God is at liberty with respect to bestowing salvation. His liberty is perfect. Nothing that the natural man has done binds God to a favorable decision. And this, his liberty is just. It is right that it should be so. Sinners have merited and now deserve instant damnation. And God's liberty to inflict it upon them now or defer it for the present or save them from it wholly according to his own pleasure, is a most just liberty. Now listen to the next thing. How does man respond to this? This is what Tracy says. The most surprising thing happened. It didn't empty the church. It brought revival. He says, when the sinner sees and feels this doctrine to be true, he knows that no course remains for him 
but to call upon God for mercy. He can make no appeal to the justice of God, for that only condemns him, nor to any other attribute but mercy, which in its very nature is free and not constrained, and he can find no satisfactory evidence that God is disposed to be merciful to sinners, but in the fact that he has given his son to die for them. Here is his only ground for hope. Is that not amazing to see? Well, you say to me, perhaps you would say to me, you preach this, Pastor, it will empty the church. Well, perhaps it may. But do you see what happened in the first great awakening? Sinners were convicted. What kind of God is this? He is not a debtor to man. His mercy is free. And his liberty is his own. Where is the sinner, sinner's refuge left but in him? What recourse does he have but to cry unto God? To be merciful, even as he says, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And where is he to look for that mercy? But in Jesus Christ, his son, in whom that mercy is offered to sinners. Let me let me state it like this, then. The testimony of history is that when the free choice is most emphasized, that sinners are most likely to come. Now, that sounds like a paradox, but it is not. I would refer you back to Tracy and Edward's observations. I would also note that in other periods of history, the same thing was found, such, in the, such as in the Reformation, the great reformation of the church. The reformers were unanimous, unanimous in teaching the doctrine of election. Luther, Calvin were agreed on this point, as were the other reformers. Well, let me say one more point by way of introduction. And here we are beginning to look at what is said in verse 19 in seeking to answer the question. Now, how ought we to approach such lofty things of God? And this is what Calvin says in his institutes. He says, first, then, let let them remember that is those who ask the question, such as we find in verse 19. Let them remember that when they inquire into predestination, they are entering the sanctuary of divine wisdom. Anyone who pries into it and who delves too brashly and confidently will never reach the point where he satisfies his curiosity, but will stumble into a labyrinth from which he will find no way out. There's his warning. Then he says, as for the secrets of his will, which he thought good to impart to us, he has borne witness to them in his word. And what he thought good to impart to us was everything which he knew would be relevant and rewarding to us once we grasp the idea that God's word is the only path which allows us to investigate all that we may lawfully know about him. It will easily stop us from acting impulsively, for then we will realize that by going beyond the bounds of scripture, we will be straying off into darkness. He continues, hence, in order to preserve the right balance, we must return to the word of God, which is the proper rule for attaining assured knowledge. Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in it, just as nothing has been omitted, which is salutary and useful to know. So nothing has been taught, which cannot be profitably understood. That's why you teach it. Let us then allow, he concludes, the Christian to open his ears and his mind to every teaching which God has for him, provided he always observes the discipline of closing the path to further inquiry once he sees that God has closed his holy lips. When he ceases to teach, may we stop wanting to know more. That's the rule. Everything that God has taught us is profitable to know, or else why did he say it? 
But if we still have questions once he has ceased to teach, let us cease to ask. What Calvin is saying, and now what I am saying with respect to verse 19, what I believe Paul is saying is that we, we have to observe the spirit in which we approach God's word always, but especially the high and the lofty mysteries and, and doctrines which we struggle to grasp. Paul is not only dealing with the objection, but he is addressing the spirit in which it was given. Well, once more, we begin with the question itself. The question is, why does he still find fault? Well, what, ask, what led him to ask this question? And it was the idea of sovereign reprobation. You remember double predestination, uh, as Calvin termed it. Uh, it refers to the fact that God is sovereign in electing sinners unto life, but he is equally sovereign, verse 18 in reprobating, reprobating sinners unto death. And it's the idea of a reprobation that is so objectionable that he hated Esau even before he was born. Or that after he was born, he hardened Pharaoh's heart even as he willed from all eternity. And in the case of those two men and all who have ever been damned, the question which is raised is, why does he still find fault? Which means, why does he still damn the sinner, seeing that, as he says, none can resist his will? If God wills to give the sinner over, there is nothing the sinner can do. The sinner might then think to himself, how is that fair? Well, again, going back to verse 18, it's clear what the teaching is. He has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. What determines the outcome in each case, the elect and the reprobate, is not man, but the will of God. Verse 16, it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, that is man, but of God, who shows mercy. It's a matter of the will of God. His good pleasure, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, his good pleasure, or the good pleasure of his will, with respect to each, the reprobate and the elect. Well, it might be said, the elect have nothing to complain about. The question of fairness doesn't come up in the case of the elect. But the reprobate, it is thought, may, because God has destined them for destruction before they had done either good or evil. How is that fair, the question uh, is asked. How is that just? And so you see the question remains what it was in verse 14. It is a question of justice and basic fairness. Is there unrighteousness with God? The apostle once again takes the trouble to answer the question, not as though to give it credence, but in order to show how easily the objections of the godless are cast aside. As Calvin says, God supplies us with weapons to withstand their fury. That's why he answers the question to arm and to equip the godly, not to indulge the ungodly. To show the godly how easily we might, as he says, withstand their fury. Notice the answers that he gives in verses 20 through 24. The first is the most forceful, almost shocking. He says in verse 20, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? And the first thing we notice here about that first answer is the radical contrast between God and man. We see, as John Murray says, the eloquence of the contrast between, O oh man, and God. And given that contrast, who are you, O oh man, to speak against God? That's the thought. That's the force of what he's saying. Here is someone who imagines that he's on a par with God. 
that God in some way is answerable to him and to such a person uh, then and today. The answer is always the same. Who are you, O man, to reply against God? Better justice Job did to close your lips. And so then the real trouble with the question is that it imagines something that isn't true, but that is entirely false. It thinks of God as one who can be examined by man. God is one who is subject to our scrutiny. God is one who answers to man in all of his weakness and folly. To think God must answer for his ways and his wisdom. God is not like that. He exists on a higher plane. He's not subject to our scrutiny. He doesn't answer to us. That really needs to be the starting point. But what is even worse, as we look at the spirit in which it is given, is that this man that Paul is answering to is not only questioning God, but he's actually accusing him of sin. He's a fault finder. You remember what God said to Job, who are you? Uh, uh, oh, fault finder in Job uh, 40, verse two, something like that. That's the problem here. He's 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 answering against God. He's not just questioning, but he but uh, but he's finding fault with God. He's replying against God. So that's the essence of Paul's reply here. He addresses man in his weakness, but also the spirit in which he addresses God. Who is man to do this? Not only to question God, but to find fault. Has he forgotten who he is? He is man. Equally, has he forgotten who God is? Clearly, he has. Now, does this mean that it is never right to ask such questions? Is there no place for the faithful, uh, honestly, with humility, to, to admit the difficulties they have with the doctrine of election and even with the doctrine of reprobation. Do we understand why it is that faithful uh, across the church uh, do not see this issue entirely eye to eye? And can we be charitable? Well, I'm, I'm not saying that we can't, nor am I saying that we can't ever ask the question. We can be charitable, charitable. We can ask the question. But the trouble with those who are godly with the doctrine, I would say, is that they do not understand It's a question of understanding. But if they are open to instruction, they will find more than enough in God's word to satisfy their questions. And they will, as Calvin said, they will uh, cease to seek to know more when God has ceased to speak. But uh, the, the problem with the ungodly is that they do understand. It's not a lack of understanding. It's precisely an understanding that they reject what is clearly taught in God's word. Their issue is not with anyone but with God. And understanding the doctrine, they find fault with him. And it is they, not the godly, but it is the ungodly who must be silenced in this way. Who are you, all man, to question God? And so there is an important lesson here. I've been talking about the spirit in which we come to this. The lesson is it matters how you approach the doctrine. Now, you don't just avoid it because it's difficult. That's the wrong approach. You ought to approach it. We, we, we want to know everything that God has taught us in, the, in his word. But it is terribly important how such subjects are taught and preached and discussed and believed. These are matters not for debate so much as they are matters to be adored, matters of praise. The spirit in which you do so. That's what Paul is rebuking more than anything else. 
So may I put it like this as I conclude this first point. And that is that we Christians have nothing to apologize for. That's one of the things that I've noticed uh, in my study of history here recently. When the church is thriving, she has such a view of God that she is proud of everything in God's word. But when the church has fallen into decay, uh, she's almost embarrassed of the truth of God's word, especially the doctrines of grace, we call them. It's always wrong to, to suggest or to act as though somehow or other that God may have been wrong to do what he did. And that we're almost sorry that he did, but alas, he is God. And so are, who are we to question him? That's not the point. No, Paul is saying, and I'm saying to you, that we must glory in all of his ways, for all of his ways are glorious and right and true. And there is nothing here to be ashamed of. There's nothing here to apologize for. There's nothing here to avoid because it's difficult and some may be offended. Yes, it matters how you approach it, but approach it. And, 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 and if I may say so, shout it from the rooftops. Uh, this is your heritage, Christian. This is the very word of God. This is the God whom you worship. This is the God who has saved you. Glory in his ways and love him and praise him for it. But the next thing we see, the next answer is this. And that is the relation of God to man. And that is that of the potter and the clay. The relation is this. God is the potter, man is the clay. And many times we find, uh, we find uh, this relationship spoken of in this way in the Old Testament, such as in Jeremiah, which we read earlier, Isaiah, and other places. Now, what is the point of this way of speaking? Uh, just simply this. It is to assert God's sovereign right over his own creation. Plain and simple. God is the potter, we are the clay. And does not, Paul says, the potter have power over the clay? Or it could be said, does he not have authority? Does he not have a sovereign right over the clay to do as he pleases? Yes, he does. So it's a question of whether God has a right to do with his own creation as he pleases. And the answer is, of course, and obviously, yes, he does. And since that is the answer, we see that it is clearly wrong for the clay to object Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? But it needs to be said, based on what he describes the potter as doing in verse 21, the potter making, he says, from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor, that what Paul is describing is God's relation to fallen sinful humanity. Here is man, the sinful lump in Adam, as we saw in chapter 5. You can think of mankind as these two lumps. There's, there's, well, uh, no, that's not right. As this one lump initially in Adam, but then God is fashioning something in addition. That's the second lump in Christ. But initially, mankind all is in Adam. And out of that initial lump, God is fashioning and shaping vessels of the same lump for different purposes. Some for mercy, some for wrath. That's the picture. Whether God has a right to do this is beyond question. The potter may do whatever he likes with the clay. But lest we think that God is creating man only to destroy him, another objection, to think that ignores the reality of sin. No, Paul is is describing God's relation to sinful man. Not man is created, but man is fallen. The lump is sinful humanity. And what the potter is doing is fashioning sinful humanity one way 
or another in just the way that suits his purpose. But that in turn leads to this question, and it's the final question, uh, the final uh, answer in reality, but I'll put it in the form of a question, and that is, why does he go about it in this particular way? It might be said, and and I, I admit I had this thought this week, and I think in various ways people have this thought all the time. The thought is something like, well, okay, God is sovereign, but I, I acknowledge that. And he may do with humanity whatever he pleases. But if that's the case, why does he not take the whole lump and fit it for mercy? Why didn't he do that? In other words, why doesn't he save everyone? Now, we could, we could be more cynical and starker, which I admit at times I am given to, and say, well, now, if I were God... I would have taken the lump and I would have fitted the whole thing for destruction. And he just about did several times in the Old Testament. He did so at the flood. He killed everyone but one family. You see, God is able to do both. Here's the question. Why the difference? God's in control. He has this, he's standing at the potter's will. He has sinful lump of humanity before him in Adam. And he's totally sovereign. What's he going to do? Well, Paul says he fits some for mercy, he fits others for wrath. Why the difference? I think in reality, that's the ultimate question here. Why does God's grace, why does God's will differentiate one from the other, seeing as all are the same? In a sense, I could say that's the mystery. I don't have an answer. But I have something of an answer here. And along with Calvin, I'll say, uh, I'll, I'll continue to speak as long as God does. And once he stops speaking, well, then I'll stop speaking too. So here's my partial answer, acknowledging that it is a mystery. And that answer is this. In this way, God was pleased to show forth the glory of his own nature. He was showing something about himself to humanity. He was, uh, I could even say, Uh, that he was glorying in himself. He was glorying in his own attributes. He was showing them forth to whom? Well, to the world, but also I would say to himself. He was delighting in himself, even as he did this very thing. He was delighting in his wrath on the one hand, so he was delighting in his grace. And is God not entitled to do both? Is God not a God who is full of wrath? Yes, he is. Is he he a God who is full of love? Yes, he is. He's both. And I imagine God there delighting fully in himself, even as he does that. That's that's the answer. Uh, And that's as far as we may go with this. But let's look in a little more detailed way at the answer, dividing it in two. In the first case, and notice the way he divides the issue, he deals with the reprobate first. He says in verse 22, what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You see, the answer here is that God desired to show forth his wrath in the reprobate. And why shouldn't he? And why shouldn't he? What if he wanted to show forth in them the power of his wrath? Why shouldn't he? And do you realize that if he hadn't done so, this is something we'd never know about him? It's something he would know about himself, but we would never know it. The world would never, be see it, would never see it. The world would never behold it. But the Lord wanted us to know this about him. He wanted us to see it. He wanted to show it. He wanted to show, uh, to show off his glory in this particular way. The power of his wrath. He wanted to make his power known. His powerful wrath. In showing his wrath and hatred for sin. There's that word again. Yes. Hate is an attribute of God, and the thing that he hates is sin. 
He hates it with a perfect hatred, with a holy hatred. And he wants us to know that about him. Might I just say as an aside, he was showing forth these very things. He was displaying them for the world to see at the cross. But that isn't the point here, though we might notice he does it there as well. The point here is that he does so in the reprobate. He's showing us how he really feels about sin. And how else would we ever know it? How else would we see his holy hatred for sin, his holiness in this way, if he did not punish it? After all, is God not within his rights to display the power and majesty of his own glorious attributes, which, yes, includes the power of his wrath in the way which pleases him most? And that's what he does with these vessels fitted out of the sinful lump for wrath and destruction. He's showing forth in them his own glorious nature as one who is eternally opposed to sin. But even then, do you notice how his nature appears as one who is full of mercy and long-suffering? You see, the full quote is this. It says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What kind of vessels they are is beyond question at this point. They are vessels... Fitted for destruction. But the amazing thing that Paul is saying here. And again we see the glory of his attributes shining forth. Is how he endures long the sin of man. And again we are bound to say only God could do this. I wouldn't do it. I would not endure the sin of my enemies. If I had the power I would destroy them all at once. But look at God here. Even as he fitted them for destruction. Long he endures the sin of man. We are left once more with a sense of wonder. At his own glorious attributes. God is not like man. He's altogether different. He exists on a higher plane. But that isn't the full story. For he says in verses 23 and 24, coming to the other side, and that he might make known, notice the language again, the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Listen to Augustine as Calvin quotes him. The Lord can as easily give grace to whomever he wills because he's merciful as not give it to all because he's a just judge. By giving to some what they do not deserve, he's able to demonstrate his free grace. By not giving it to everyone, he's able to demonstrate what all deserve. You see, in one he displays his justice, in another he displays his grace. And again, we ask, why not? For he is God. Does he not have the right, the sovereign right to do with each as he pleases, seeing that all come out of the same sinful lump in Adam, fallen humanity? But do you notice that on the other side of the wrath and power, verse 22, is the riches of his glory? The riches of his glory. I might have said his mercy and grace or something like that. But Paul says the riches of his glory. That's the thing that's shining forth in the elect. God in saving them is demonstrating to all the riches of his glory. These who are fitted for glory, even the sons of God. Just as we saw in Romans chapter 8. Would it not have been enough simply to have said his glory? You see, you have power and wrath on the one hand. Why not his glory on the other? Why did he say the riches of his glory? Well, Paul wanted us to really stand in wonder here. That God who is so full of power and wrath against sin. And yes, that is the starting point. The God who says, Esau, I have hated. 
My heart is against you. I have fitted you for destruction. How fearful then does God appear against man in sin as a God who is full of vengeance and wrath. And yet so too, how just he appears for as Calvin says, and let me quote him one final time. Let them not then accuse God of iniquity when by his eternal judgment they are appointed to damnation to which their very nature leads them. No, God is not wrong. There is no injustice with God. How can man complain that God appoints him to eternal damnation, seeing that they are sinners who deserve to be damned? And in this, God appears to be full of power and wrath. Yes, begin there and then say with Paul that such a God would also say of Jacob, I have loved you. I've set my heart upon you. I have made you a vessel of mercy prepared for glory. Why? Not for works which, we, which he has done, but only that in him the riches of God's glory would appear. For all the world to see through all the vast ages of eternity. And I ask you, is there any other way of speaking of God's glory than the riches of his glory? Does not God here appear to be rich in mercy and kindness and love and grace, which is to say glorious? If you study the, the epistles of Paul, you'll notice the word glory is his favorite way to describe it. Or excuse me, the word riches, the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory. Where does it appear in saving man? And the impression that we are left with is what kind of God is this that he takes of the sinful lump of fallen man and fits so many vessels for glory, vessels of mercy? Is he not one who is rich in glory? Rich in grace, rich in mercy. Is there any other way to speak of it? You see, you can, in a sense, speak of the power and the wrath of God uh, in damning sinners in a bare sense. The bare power of God, the bare wrath. But as soon as you begin to speak of his dealings with sinful man in saving him, you must speak in a different way. That's another lesson we see here. You begin to speak of the riches, the abundance not just grace, but amazing grace. The overwhelming character of what God has done for man. You see, in a sense, I understand that he destroyed his enemies. But I wonder that he saved any of them. That's the wonder of the ages. It's a matter of pure wonder and amazement. Even, even to the principalities and the powers. Even to the angels. Yes, and all this, even, verse 24, to us whom he has called, not Jews only, but also Gentiles. You see, what makes all the difference is not nationality or race. That is not how the purpose of God proceeds, not according to nationality, but according to election. It's the call of God. It is God who is rich in mercy, calling sinners to himself as vessels fitted for glory by his own grace, that in us the riches of his glory might appear. Let me close with two points of application. Do you realize that that's exactly what the church is? And do you realize that's exactly what a Christian is, if, if that's what you are, if you're a Christian? You see, you're not someone who has anything to boast in. That's the whole point here. Paul is leveling the pride of man. He's saying, if God chose you, it wasn't because of anything he foresaw in you. You have nothing to boast in. The reality is far different. Listen, it's that God is boasting in you. Do you realize that? It is that in you as the church, his glory is shining forth. 
It's shining forth, as I say, for the world, for the principalities, for the for the angels to see. He's saying, here is my glorious bride in whom the riches of my glorious grace appear. It is a matter of of wonder and amazement even to angels. But but my last point of application is, has God been so rich to you only for you to slight him by your own pride and ingratitude? Do you look on all this as a matter of wonder? Do you ascribe to God along with Paul riches? You see, the man who understands what Paul is saying here says, I can't begin to speak of his saving me without ascribing to him all riches and glory and honor. He's God. And that he ever regarded me at all and took the trouble to save me and fashioned me for everlasting glory. That's something I'll never fully understand. It will always be to me a matter of pure wonder. Even through all the ages of eternity. Is that how you feel about God? Or do you still resent the whole notion of his sovereignty and his power? And his wrath and his glory. His rightful claim on all his creation. And the wisdom of his own government in dealing with man. Really I would say. And this is my closing word. There is no passage that so exposes how man really feels about God as what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 9. Amen. And let us come to the table now together.